Chapter One, Part Nine of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay, Volume Two. Chapter One The Crusades, Part Nine. The army separated into two divisions, the smaller falling back upon Jaffa, and the larger, commanded by Richard and the Duke of Burgundy, returning to Acre. Before the English monarch had made all his preparations for his return to Europe, a messenger reached Acre with the intelligence that Jaffa was besieged by Saladin and that unless relieved immediately the city would be taken the french under the duke of burgundy were so wearied with the war that they refused to aid their brethren in jaffa richard blushing with shame at their pusillanimity called his english to the rescue and arrived just in time to save the city his very name put the saracens to flight so great was their dread of his prowess saladin regarded him with the warmest admiration and when richard after his victory demanded peace willingly acceded a truce was concluded for three years and eight months during which christian pilgrims were to enjoy the liberty of visiting jerusalem without hindrance or payment of any tax the crusaders were allowed to retain the cities of tyre and jaffa with the country intervening saladin with a princely generosity invited many of the christians to visit jerusalem and several of the leaders took advantage of his offer to feast their eyes upon a spot which all considered so sacred many of them were entertained for days in the sultan's own palace from which they returned with their tongues laden with the praises of the noble infidel richard and saladin never met though the impression that they did will remain on many minds who have been dazzled by the glorious fiction of sir walter scott but each admired the prowess and nobleness of soul of his rival and agreed to terms far less onerous than either would have accepted had this mutual admiration not existed footnote richard left a high reputation in palestine so much terror did his name occasion that the women of syria used it to frighten their children for ages afterwards every disobedient child became still when told that king richard was coming even men shared the panic that his name created and a hundred years afterwards whenever a horse shied at any object in the way his rider would exclaim what dost thou think king richard is in the bush End footnote. the king of england no longer delayed his departure for messengers from his own country brought imperative news that his presence was required to defeat the intrigues that were fomenting against his crown his long imprisonment in the austrian dominions and final ransom are too well known to be dwelt upon and thus ended the third crusade less destructive of human life than the first two but quite as useless the flame of popular enthusiasm now burned pale indeed 
and all the efforts of popes and potentates were insufficient to rekindle it at last after flickering unsteadily like a lamp expiring in the socket it burned up brightly for one final instant and was extinguished for ever the fourth crusade as connected with popular feeling requires little or no notice at the death of saladin which happened a year after the conclusion of his truce with richard of england his vast empire fell to pieces his brother saif eddin or safadin seized upon syria in the possession of which he was troubled by the sons of saladin when this intelligence reached europe the pope celestine the third judged the moment favorable for preaching a new crusade but every nation in europe was unwilling and cold towards it the people had no ardor and kings were occupied with more weighty matters at home the only monarch of europe who encouraged it was the emperor henry of germany under whose auspices the dukes of saxony and bavaria took the field at the head of a considerable force they landed in palestine and found anything but a welcome from the christian inhabitants under the mild sway of saladin they had enjoyed repose and toleration and both were endangered by the arrival of the germans they looked upon them in consequence as over-officious intruders and gave them no encouragement in the warfare against Safedin. the result of this crusade was even more disastrous than the last for the germans contrived not only to embitter the saracens against the christians of judea but to lose the strong city of jaffa and cause the destruction of nine-tenths of the army with which they had quitted europe and so ended the fourth crusade the fifth was more important and had a result which its projectors never dreamed of no less than the sacking of constantinople and the placing of a french dynasty upon the imperial throne of the eastern caesars each succeeding pope however much he may have differed from his predecessors on other points zealously agreed in one that of maintaining by every possible means the papal ascendancy no scheme was so likely to aid in this endeavor as the crusades as long as they could persuade the kings and nobles of europe to fight and die in syria their own sway was secured over the minds of men at home such being their object they never inquired whether a crusade was or was not likely to be successful whether the time were well or ill chosen or whether men and money could be procured in sufficient abundance pope innocent the third would have been proud if he could have bent the refractory monarchs of england and france into so much submission but john and philip augustus were both engaged both had deeply offended the church and had been laid under her ban and both were occupied in important reforms at home philip in bestowing immunities upon his subjects and john in having them forced from him the emissaries of the pope therefore plied them in vain but as in the first and second crusades the eloquence of a powerful preacher incited the nobility and through them a certain portion of the people 
Fulk, bishop of Neuilly, an ambitious and enterprising prelate, entered fully into the views of the court of Rome, and preached the crusade wherever he could find an audience. Chance favored him to a degree he did not himself expect, for he had in general found but few proselytes, and those few but cold in the cause. Theobald, Count of Champagne, had instituted a grand tournament, to which he had invited all the nobles from far and near. Upwards of two thousand knights were present with their retainers, besides a vast concourse of people to witness the sports. In the midst of the festivities, Fulk arrived on the spot, and, conceiving the opportunity to be a favorable one, he addressed the multitude in eloquent language, and passionately called upon them to enroll themselves for the new crusade. The Count de Champagne, young, ardent, and easily excited, received the cross at his hands. The enthusiasm spread rapidly. Charles, Count of Blois, followed the example, and of the two thousand knights present, scarcely one hundred and fifty refused. The popular frenzy seemed on the point of breaking out as in the days of yore. The Count of Flanders, the Count of Bar, the Duke of Burgundy, and the Marquis of Montferrat brought all their vassals to swell the train, and in a very short space of time an effective army was on foot and ready to march to Palestine. The dangers of an overland journey were too well understood, and the crusaders endeavored to make a contract with some of the Italian states to convey them over in their vessels. Dandolo, the aged doge of Venice, offered them the galleys of the Republic, but the crusaders on their arrival in that city found themselves too poor to pay even half the sum demanded. Every means was tried to raise money. The crusaders melted down their plate, and ladies gave up their trinkets. Contributions were solicited from the faithful, but came in so slowly as to make it evident to all concerned that the faithful of Europe were outnumbered by the prudent. As a last resource, Dandolo offered to convey them to Palestine at the expense of the Republic, if they would previously aid in the recapture of the city of Zara, which had been seized from the Venetians a short time previously by the king of Hungary. The crusaders consented, much to the displeasure of the pope, who threatened excommunication upon all who should be turned aside from the voyage to Jerusalem. But, notwithstanding the fulminations of the church, the expedition never reached Palestine. The siege of Zara was speedily undertaken. After a long and brave defense, the city surrendered at discretion, and the crusaders were free, if they had so chosen it, to use their swords against the Saracens. But the ambition of the chiefs had been directed, by unforeseen circumstances, elsewhere. After the death of Manuel Comnenus, the Greek empire had fallen a prey to intestine divisions. His son, Alexius II, had succeeded him, but was murdered after a short reign by his uncle Andronicus, who seized upon the throne. His reign also was but of short duration. Isaac Angelos, a member of the same family, 
took up arms against the usurper and having defeated and captured him in a pitched battle had him put to death he also mounted the throne only to be cast down from it his brother alexius deposed him and to incapacitate him from reigning put out his eyes and shut him up in a dungeon neither was alexius the third allowed to remain in peaceable possession of the throne the son of the unhappy isaac whose name also was alexius fled from constantinople and hearing that the crusaders had undertaken the siege of zara made them the most magnificent offers if they would afterwards aid him in deposing his uncle his offers were that if by their means he was re-established in his father's dominions he would place the greek church under the authority of the pope of rome lend the whole force of the greek empire to the conquest of palestine and distribute two hundred thousand marks of silver among the crusading army the offer was accepted with a proviso on the part of some of the leaders that they should be free to abandon the design if it met with the disapproval of the pope but this was not to be feared the submission of the schismatic greeks to the see of rome was a greater bribe to the pontiff than the utter annihilation of the saracen power in palestine would have been the crusaders were soon in movement for the imperial city their operations were skilfully and courageously directed and spread such dismay as to paralyze the efforts of the usurper to retain possession of his throne after a vain resistance he abandoned the city to its fate and fled no one knew whither the aged and blind isaac was taken from his dungeon by his subjects and placed upon the throne ere the crusaders were apprised of the flight of his rival his son alexius the fourth was afterwards associated with him in the sovereignty but the conditions of the treaty gave offence to the grecian people whose prelates refused to place themselves under the dominion of the see of rome alexius at first endeavoured to persuade his subjects to admission and prayed the crusaders to remain in constantinople until they had fortified him in the possession of a throne which was yet far from secure he soon became unpopular with his subjects and breaking faith with regard to the subsidies he offended the crusaders war was at length declared upon him by both parties by his people for his tyranny and by his former friends for his treachery he was seized in his palace by his own guards and thrown into prison while the crusaders were making ready to besiege his capital the greeks immediately proceeded to the election of a new monarch and looking about for a man of courage energy and perseverance they fixed upon alexius ducas who with almost every bad quality was possessed of the virtues they needed he ascended the throne under the name of Merzuflis one of his first acts was to rid himself of his youngest predecessor a broken heart had already removed the blind old isaac no longer a stumbling block in his way and the young alexius was soon after put to death in his prison war to the knife was now declared between the greeks and the franks 
and early in the spring of the year 1204, preparations were commenced for an assault upon Constantinople. The French and Venetians entered into a treaty for the division of the spoils among their soldiery, for so confident were they of success that failure never once entered into their calculations. This confidence led them on to victory, while the Greeks, cowardly as treacherous people always are, were paralyzed by a foreboding of evil. It has been a matter of astonishment to all historians that Merzouflis, with the reputation for courage which he had acquired and the immense resources at his disposal, took no better measures to repel the onset of the crusaders. Their numbers were as a mere handful in comparison with those which he could have brought against them, and, if they had the hopes of plunder to lead them on, the Greeks had their homes to fight for, and their very existence as a nation to protect. After an impetuous assault, repulsed for one day, but renewed with double impetuosity on another, the crusaders lashed their vessels against the walls, slew every man who opposed them, and, with little loss to themselves, entered the city. Merzouflis fled, and Constantinople was given over to be pillaged by the victors. The wealth they found was enormous. In money alone there was sufficient to distribute twenty marks of silver to each knight, ten to each squire or servant-at-arms, and five to each archer. Jewels, velvets, silks, and every luxury of attire, with rare wines and fruits, and valuable merchandise of every description, also fell into their hands, and were bought by the trading Venetians, and the proceeds distributed among the army. Two thousand persons were put to the sword, but had there been less plunder to take up the attention of the victors, the slaughter would in all probability have been much greater. In many of the bloody wars which defile the page of history, we find that soldiers, utterly reckless of the works of God, will destroy his masterpiece. Man, with unsparing brutality, but linger with respect round the beautiful works of art. They will slaughter women and children, but spare a picture. Will hew down the sick, the helpless, and the hoary-headed, but refrain from injuring a fine piece of sculpture. The Latins, on their entrance into Constantinople, respected neither the works of God nor man, but vented their brutal ferocity upon the one, and satisfied their avarice upon the other. Many beautiful bronze statues, above all price as works of art, were broken into pieces to be sold as old metal. A finely chiseled marble, which could be put to no such vile uses, was also destroyed with a recklessness, if possible, still more atrocious. Footnote. The following is a list of some of the works of art thus destroyed, from Nicetas, a contemporary Greek author. First, a colossal Juno, from the Forum of Constantine, the head of which was so large that four horses could scarcely draw it from the place where it stood to the palace. Second, the statue of Paris, presenting the apple to Venus. Third, an immense bronze pyramid, crowned by a female figure, which turned with the wind. Fourth, the colossal statue of Bellerophon, 
in bronze which was broken down and cast into the furnace under the inner nail of the horse's hind foot on the left side was found a seal wrapped in a woolen cloth fifth a figure of hercules by lysimachus of such vast dimensions that the thumb was equal in circumference to the waist of a man sixth the ass and his driver cast by order of augustus after the battle of actium in commemoration of his having discovered the position of anthony through the means of an ass driver seventh the wolf suckling the twins of rome eighth the gladiator in combat with a lion ninth the hippopotamus tenth the sphinxes eleventh an eagle fighting with a serpent twelfth a beautiful statue of helen thirteenth a group with a monster somewhat resembling a bull engaged in deadly conflict with a serpent and many other works of art too numerous to mention End footnote. the carnage being over and the spoil distributed six persons were chosen from among the franks and six from among the venetians who were to meet and elect an emperor previously binding themselves by oath to select the individual best qualified among the candidates the choice wavered between baldwin count of flanders and boniface marquis of montferrat but fell eventually upon the former he was straightway robed in the imperial purple and became the founder of a new dynasty he did not live long to enjoy his power or to consolidate it for his successors who in their turn were soon swept away in less than sixty years the rule of the franks at constantinople was brought to as sudden and disastrous a termination as the reign of Merzuflis, and this was the grand result of the fifth crusade pope innocent the third although he had looked with no very unfavorable eye upon these proceedings regretted that nothing had been done for the relief of the holy land still upon every convenient occasion he enforced the necessity of a new crusade until the year twelve thirteen his exhortations had no other effect than to keep the subject in the mind of europe every spring and summer detachments of pilgrims continued to set out for palestine to the aid of their brethren but not in sufficient numbers to be of much service these periodical passages were called the passagium martii or the passage of march and the passagium johannis or the passage of the festival of st john these did not consist entirely of soldiers armed against the saracen but of pilgrims led by devotion and in performance of their vows bearing nothing with them but their staff and their wallet early in the spring of twelve thirteen a more extraordinary body of crusaders was raised in france and germany an immense number of boys and girls amounting according to some accounts to thirty thousand were incited by the persuasion of two monks to undertake the journey to palestine they were no doubt composed of the idle and deserted children who generally swarm in great cities nurtured in vice and daring and ready for anything 
the object of the monks seems to have been the atrocious one of inveigling them into slave ships on pretense of sending them to syria and selling them for slaves on the coast of africa great numbers of these poor victims were shipped at marseilles but the vessels with the exception of two or three were wrecked on the shores of italy and every soul perished the remainder arrived safely in africa and were bought up as slaves and sent off into the interior of the country another detachment arrived at genoa but the accomplices in this horrid plot having taken no measures at that port expecting them all at marseilles they were induced to return to their homes by the genoese End of chapter 1, part 9 Recording by Linda Johnson